FIRA USA 2022 will be the unique three-day event dedicated to autonomous agriculture and agricultural robotics solutions. Featuring one day of R&D, one day of farm business speakers, and an in-field demo day, FIRA USA will take place this fall, October 18th to 20th, 2022, in Fresno, California. Discover the latest innovations from manufacturers on robotic and autonomous solutions that can take your farm to the next level. Visit fira-agtech.com. That's fira, F-I-R-A-A-G-T-E-C-H.com for more information and to register today. Spotlight. I'm Chrissy Wozniak. My guest today is pretty much a neighbor of mine for half the year in Estero, Florida. And uh, we're going to be talking about a conference at the other end of the country today, the Unconventional Ag Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This eighth annual conference features the latest in regenerative, organic, and sustainable agriculture methods. From the Unconventional Ag Conference and the founder of Agrimaris, I'd like to welcome Peter Golbitz. Welcome, Peter, and thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome, Chrissy. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell me a bit about your uh, about your background. Well, it's kind of it, well, it's certainly interesting uh, in that I started in the soybean and agricultural area as a food processor. I actually had a small tofu and meat alternative company back in the 1980s in Maine. Uh, and that kind of led to uh, a number of discoveries of uh, and explorations of food technology and such. And then that moved into a consulting business once I realized that I couldn't get everybody in Maine to eat two blocks of tofu a day and keep <laughs> me in business. So that was, we were early, that was pioneering. And then, uh, but over the years, I've uh, been involved in, in a lot of the areas around the utilization of soybeans directly for food, uh, which kind of led me to organic and specialty ag and the other areas where there's a lot of value added in agriculture and then value added in food processing. And at the same time, uh, much higher utilization of food directly for humans, which makes it a more sustainable agricultural system. Yeah. Okay. That's that's awesome. Can you tell me a bit about unconventional ag and why it was started? Well, um, this is a great conference in that over the years it has continued to evolve as the market needs evolve. So a number of years ago, this conference was started as the organic and non-GMO forum. The special to focus on specialty uh, grain uh, opportunities for producers, also to help stimulate the interest among grain handlers and processors to be looking for and supporting this value-added opportunity for farmers by paying higher premiums for organic and non-GMO. As the market has evolved and those markets have stabilized, and I mean, obviously there are still challenges within all those specialty areas. Uh, the uh, the increased use of soybeans and legumes and other crops directly as human food and new plant-based alternatives also began uh, to pick up steam. And we've seen certainly the plant-based milk market evolve very quickly over the past 10 years. And in the past three or four years, plant-based meat alternatives have also exploded. And that's created a lot of opportunities for, uh, for food processors, um, for, you know, consumers see these products, get these products. There's a pull then from the marketplace for processors to make these, which then there's a pull 
to producers to grow some of these specialty crops and, and such. And we're definitely seeing market shift. We're seeing higher demand for oats and for pea uh, and for non-GMO soy, for example, as a result of that. Um, unconventional ag really is about opportunities outside of just conventional ag. This, you know, conventional ag is primarily, you know, our corn, soybean, wheat uh, crops, uh, and mainly grown for commodity markets. Uh, it's a stable, it's a large market, it's a stable market. But if you want to add additional value to your operation as a farmer or as a food processor, you kind of need to step into some of the, the newer emerging areas where consumers are willing to pay more, food processors are willing to start launching these products and create demand. So it becomes kind of an unconventional ag. And we thought it was a nice play on words. Uh, we were adding this year uh, a couple of more, a couple of specific focuses on plant-based products specifically and fermentation. And while precision fermentation is not agriculture per se, it is a new wave of agriculture in that we are growing uh, organisms and proteins in fermentation vats. Now, whether or not you really see that as agriculture, the reality is it will compete with conventional agriculture. And so it's important to explore those. It's important for people to understand what is that all about and, and why is that market exists? How do how are these products made? Is it an opportunity for me or potentially a threat for me in some areas? So it's, it's an interesting mix. We really want to bring together uh, producer discussions, uh, processor discussions, consumer needs, consumer trends, uh, and really I think it's the only conference where food and ag cross over. It's kind of a hybrid event. It isn't just about precision agriculture and it isn't just about food marketing, but it's a way of kind of touching the middle of the market, really where everything needs to happen in terms of pulling levers for more demand and pulling levers for uh, uh, responding to consumer demand for food products. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, and I've never really thought about the fermentation industry being part of agriculture, but it just goes to show you that agriculture touches everything. Yeah, we all we have to eat and we want our yeah. foods produced in a sustainable manner. Uh, and those of us who understand the food supply chain want all stakeholders to be rewarded well. And I think that uh, you know one of the challenges today is consumers just don't understand what the producer uh, goes through in terms of getting crops to market, the risks that they take and such. And so they need these value-added opportunities uh, in order to help balance out, you know, for those who 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 want who want those opportunities. Not every producer is looking to break into new markets, but there are many who are looking for new ways of doing things and increasing the value of their farm and their family operation. Right. Yeah. So so that that covers a lot. And and if you were to just boil it down to a main goal of the convention, what what would that be? I think it's to bring together the disparate parts of the value chain, right from the producer, right to the food processor. And it also requires a look at the ultimate consumer. So it brings those together to help facilitate the uh, the exchange, uh, the, the networking, the development of that market to kind of help build, give it some strength. Yeah, that's right. So what are you most excited about, uh, about this year's show? Uh, I think it's the, uh, the actual, we're, we're actually getting into some sensory evaluation here. 
Uh, and this is something we had done many years ago at some of the Soyatech events where we had a taste of soy presentation where um, salespeople, product development people would get to taste different things and understand how to develop a common vocabulary around food taste and sensory evaluation. This year, we're having the Plant Protein Innovation Center, which is there in St. Paul at the University of Minnesota. They're going to do a session on evaluating chicken meat alternatives. So this is plant-based chicken products. And the idea is for those in the audience who might be investors, might be a farmer, they might be a food processor, to understand the challenges that are facing plant-based meats, uh, what, are, what are good, which ones are better than others, the kinds of technologies that are being used, uh, the kind of benchmarks that are trying to be reached, the challenges of reaching those benchmarks in terms of consumer acceptance. So we're going to have this great session from the Plant Protein Innovation Center. Uh, they're also doing another session on science around uh, working with plant-based proteins. Uh, the Good Food Institute is doing a presentation on precision fermentation. And this is where uh, yeast microbes and other uh, microbes are, are, are altered in a way to help them produce what would have been, let's say, dairy proteins, uh, like dairy whey and dairy casein, uh, and, and even meat proteins that are similar to cell-based meat. The idea is that um, these are technologies which, again, that they're not necessarily agriculture, but they are going, they're, they're going to compete with agriculture. Uh, we have plant-based whey proteins now entering the market. Nestle just the other day announced they're going to be launching a product uh, on using plant-based or non-animal-based whey. And it so clearly it's going to compete with milk. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other companies getting ready to launch products using similar ingredients. So again, we're now we're starting, it's unconventional, but it's going to compete with agriculture. And again, is it an opportunity or a threat? Those are for individual companies and food processors to kind of uh, cipher for themselves and decide how they want to play in the space. Right. That makes sense. And and how many exhibitors are you expecting? I think we're going to have about 15 or 20 altogether. This isn't a big exhibitor focused show. This right. is really a content focused show. Uh, the exhibitors, it's great because I, last year's event, uh, obviously there was a lot of pent up demand uh, due to the event having been canceled the year before uh, due to COVID. Uh, but the, the the amount of the people that were there were intensely involved in discussions with each other. There was business going on uh, on the right there in the exhibit area. People were buying commodity and buying specialty grain. There was just so much pent up need to connect with one another. So these 12, the, there's 12 right now. I'm, I think we're going to have about 20 when, when we're all done. Uh, those are you know suppliers, uh, technology providers, equipment providers. Uh, and again, they're they're. They're there to share what they hear, what the market's doing, but then also to share what they can offer uh, to the marketplace. Wow, that's great. And um, how much does it cost to attend? Uh, I think it's $7.99 this year. Mm -hmm. uh, and that includes some great food, too. I really am always impressed uh, with the quality of the venue. It's, it's run very well. Uh, it's in a great location in Minneapolis, uh, which is a wonderful area. And a lot of People can end up driving there with coming from the Midwest, uh, but also it's, you know, it's a real business center for food and agriculture in the U.S. You have a lot of food and agricultural 
uh, processing companies located in Minneapolis. Uh, there's some great equipment suppliers there as well. Last year, we had a great tour uh, from Bueller at their plant, their Food Processing Innovation Center, I forget the exact acronym, but they they display all their equipment. They can do pilot plant work for companies. Wow. And they gave us a tour uh, of that facility last year, which was very, very nice. Well, that's good. And the, the food part is appealing to me. I'll be there as well. So I'm oh, that's looking great. forward to, the, to yeah. the food part. <laughs> I was looking over the agenda and, and it's like uh, lunch here and uh, <laughs> this food here, that food here. So that, I think that'll be really great, um, not to mention the tours. Um, and you'd said before that the the Purist Innovation Center is opening their doors to a private tour. Uh, what are some of the the main features of that tour? Well, so Purist, it's an interesting, you know, they started off as a soy processor many years ago uh, and they evolved uh, with the market. And now they're, they became a leading provider of pea protein uh, made mm-hmm. from yellow pea. Uh, mm-hmm. Then they formed this uh, venture with Cargill. And they've opened up a, a new processing facility right there, right outside the city. Um, so we're going to get to go in. This is, uh, I don't know how many public tours they give, but I don't imagine too many because there is proprietary technology there. Uh, but they're very proud of their innovation center there. Uh, it's going to be wonderful to get a tour, to learn a little bit about how yellow pea is processed into protein products. Uh, not just powder, but also into these uh, structured textural products now, which are in the marketplace. Uh, and I believe we're going to get to taste some products made with the purest proteins as well. So uh, it's a great opportunity uh, if you know if you are a food processor or, or want to understand where your crops go and and how they're processed. This is this is a great uh, great opportunity. Yeah, that's really exciting, and um, and. Uh... You know, in in my opinion, there is no better caretaker of the land than a farmer. And there's but there's a fine line between being a good steward and then just doing something for the sake of doing it, you know, to look good on paper. So how do you think that producers should navigate that line going forward? That that's a great question. Uh, in fact, we have a speaker, um, uh, Jake Lagu, who's going to be talking about how farmers need they don't want to be told what the plant they want to be asked what what they should what they can do and uh farming making decisions on the kind of crop to produce how to produce it uh cover crops how to harvest how to take your grain to market they're all very individual based on obviously the product being produced but also the markets that are available to that producer. Not every producer has access to you know different markets. A lot of them are just all they can do is really grow corn or soybeans. But there are other farmers who can grow uh, other crops and who also can grow value-added crops. Um, this the line for sustainability. You know, the farmer needs to decide if they're going to be a commodity farmer using conventional uh, farm chemical systems and sell, you know, based on volume and such. Uh, that's one op- That's one option. And many farmers, that model works fine. Others are concerned about um, the long-term sustainability of their farm. Uh, so they're concerned about soil health, actually, and being able to uh, build enough organic matter in the soil to withstand drought and uh, even over rain situations um, and such. And so those farmers are taking a, a closer look at their farming systems, uh, how to maintain those, 
Uh, Crab Crops is, is a big initiative going on now, which obviously protects the soil in the winter. Uh, it, it reduces soil loss, but it's also a form of green manure in that they can plow it in or it's nitrogen fixing. And it really helps with the, uh, the next year's crop, even though it costs more to plant the cover crop at the end of their, their growing season. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities. It's, it's got to be negotiated by the farmer themselves. It's, it's really between the farmer, their family, uh, and I, their neighbors to some degree. Um, because you'll, you'll find, for example, that there are clusters of organic production around the country. Uh, and that helps to, to kind of build them, you know, it means processors might invest in producing within that area or processing within that area, but also producers tend to, to be good neighbors to each other. Uh, and they want to help each other and they, they can be mentors to each other when they have, uh, problems. But obviously all farmers are concerned about sustainability today. How they address that, how it really becomes very individual on their their location. It's a you know that different farmers in different parts of the country are going to have different solutions, uh, and also what they can market. You know what how they can keep their farm profitable. At the end of the day, uh, the farm needs to be profitable if it's going to support a family or support a community, uh, and so the farmer knows that sustainability is a key part of that. How they approach that is 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 a very individual choice. There's many options out there um, for farmers to choose from. Yeah, those are excellent points. And are there any key metrics that um, that would be helpful for for producers to be looking at or to be striving for to to really measure their success? That's a great question, and of course, that means they have to set goals. You know, before, uh, if you set the goal to increase your yield and produce 300 bushels of corn per acre, that's one metric. Uh, and many farmers go by that because it's it's about profitability. Uh, but at the same time, you know, from a how many pounds of nitrogen did they put in the soil versus how many bushels of corn they got? There's some equations there that uh, are all about um, just pushing the system to the max. But that is one metric. Uh, there are ways of measuring soil health, uh, whether it's depth, whether it's percent of organic matter. Uh, there are soil scientists. In fact, one of the one of the presentations at an unconventional ag is going to be a soil scientist talking about healthy soils and their importance, how to build them, how to measure them, and such. So that's a that's a, a big KPI. Uh, regenerative ag, which is separate from the organic. Um, movement and organic certification uh, is trying to set metrics for regenerative. In other words, so that farmers can see uh, sequential improvement over a number of years. And and it validates that what they're doing is right, uh, gives them a measurement of success or failure or slip back or, you know, try to understand, okay, this past winter, this event happened or these insects happened. Um, And so over time, they begin to understand some of the science in, in regenerative and then the metrics used to gauge, gauge support. Organic is a great system. Uh, I think one of the weaknesses in organic production today uh, is that it is, you have to verify and be inspected and it is a process function. Uh, organic is a process, not, not a, there's no chemical testing done per se, but your, your process of farming is verified and that you're using no prohibited substances and such. Unfortunately, along with that, there aren't any metrics for 
success in terms of regenerative and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's been kind of an Achilles heel of organic over the past couple of years because the organic regulations are, are very challenging to change because it is a USDA program authorized by Congress. Only Congress can authorize changes to it. That's not likely to happen uh, easily anyway. So regenerative is a movement uh, being supported by a lot in the private industry. Uh, uh, and so, and that's about trying to set some of these metrics as well. Uh, United Soybean Export Council has a metric they put together on sustainability and you get a, a certificate on sustainability. Wow. So there, there are different methods out there. Nothing is unified at this point or perfect, uh, but farmers who are interested in understanding uh, where how to get those, they're out there. They should start with their local ag extension or the USDA uh, and then look at some of these private organizations. Yeah, that's really helpful. And and as it you know develops and get you know gains these uh, different ways to measure, I think it can only get better from from here. And Certainly. and for for a producer in this climate where there's so much uncertainty with inputs, with you know the whole world right now, um, change can be very scary, scary, especially in a time like this. So, what small steps can farmers do to try new things without a lot of risk? Yeah, another great question. Um, there, are, if if you take a look at as a, at organic farming, for example, mm. you'll find that the average organic farm is fifty to one hundred acres. Now, that operation might be a thousand acres, and they may have three hundred acres of non-GMO, five hundred acres of conventional, and two hundred acres of organic, mm-hmm. uh, because that farmer has access to markets for those other crops, and thus they can kind of mix their operation of it, it helps to, uh, hedge against, uh, that, you know, a bad market. And also one of the, one of the particular crops that might be having, having a problem setting up the farm to, to invest in 50 or 100 acres of a different crop, as opposed to converting 3000 acres over to entirely different. That's one great way of doing it. Um, looking at any other kind of diversification they can do on the farm. And it really has a lot to do with their objectives, also their access to labor. Um, and, you know, that that's becoming a, a big challenge on, on the farm, that these larger farms, which are needed in order to produce enough grain to be profitable. And, you know, we've gone from, I think, you know, farms are getting larger in the two and 3,000 acre and up area, 6,000 acres, because that's what's needed in that area to be profitable. Um, and so you have a high degree of mechanization, but you also have a lot of labor that's needed. And, uh, you know, it's not like you have enough family members to help on a 6,000 acre farm. I think that might get maxed out at, you know, at a couple of thousand acres. So uh, access to labor is a challenge. Um, and, uh, so doing smaller things is, is a good way of trying things out. Um, and the specialty markets, for example, we know that there's a, there was an oat shortage last year due to the rapid growth in plant-based milks that are being produced with oats. There was, a, there's a shortage of peas due to some issues in China and Canada, and there's a high demand for yellow peas. Uh, so if a farmer takes a look at some of these uh, emerging high value markets and tries 50 acres or 100 acres. That's probably the best way they can do it. And then also look at cover cropping and some other methods on a small scale, starting off uh, seeing how that works and then be able to compare 
on the then the following season, uh, one farming method or one thing they did to another. Yeah, those are those, that's great advice. Great points. And now let's switch over to the general public. Um, they are so far removed from the farm that they're very susceptible to believing misinformation about food. I've been in marketing my whole life, and I know that uh, companies, uh, especially food processors, they will create a message that is often misleading to sell a product and, you know, um, whatever that message may be. But what what do you think as an industry, what we can do to move forward with the truth, <laughs> right? What what are some steps that we can do as an industry? Uh, good question. You know, the, one of the challenges, you know, so in the food and in the ag space, uh, you know, your communication with consumers is filtered through and managed by the consumer packaged goods company. Right. And they're in a very competitive space in the marketplace. Um, so for example, in, in the consumer market, you know, fear is a big motivator of sales, right? Yeah. You know, doesn't contain this, you know, all that, the, the free from labeling, uh, whether it's uh, GMO, whether it's uh, uh, BGH, uh, you know, whatever it is that the consumer is concerned about, companies market to their fear and will put a product out there that says doesn't contain bovine growth hormone or made with non-GMO. Um, and eggs, it's gluten-free, right? Yeah, <laughs> gluten-free gluten water, you know, yeah, that's um, it. <laughs> or organic water or non-GMO water. You know, it just, mm -hmm. it gets to, it gets a little bit ridiculous, but what it programs consumers to do is respond to those claims. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of the misinformation uh, is, starts. And it's unfortunate, for example, uh, non-GMO. Uh, non-GMO, you know, GMO crops are primarily corn and soybeans, and there's a couple other major crops. Uh, and then you have some, there are some vegetables and a couple of fruits out there that are GMO. But the vast majority of our food is non-GMO. Um, and when you see something like uh, a, a non-GMO green bean, when there are no GMO green beans, right? right? Drives me crazy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and there's a, so, and again, they're marketing to consumers' fear, and they're also trying to maybe add value to their particular product by throwing this free from label on there. And that product was always free from that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where a lot of the misinformation starts. And then, of course, you know, we're right now living in a time of. Uh, you know, conspiracy and misinformation everywhere and fear mongering. And it's really unfortunate. Um, and of course, and, and it, you know, it's not like the ag industry hasn't made mistakes or hasn't, you know, uh, where there, where there's been issues that the ag industry probably could have managed better. Uh, and so you have these PR issues, whether it's a, a contamination of a field or whether it's, you know, a food poisoning event, or I mean, you know, like a spoilage event or a, a contamination event uh, of food. Or, um, so there, there is, there's a lot of information for consumers to kind of filter through and manage. I don't know how you educate consumers. I mean, I, I think what's lacking now in particularly in school is the teaching of how, where our food supply comes from, right? You know, it doesn't come from a truck, you yes. know, and <laughs> kids need to understand that. Uh, it'd be wonderful if there could be, and I know it's hard and, you know, you have so many people living in cities, they're not necessarily have close access to farms, 
But it'd be wonderful for kids to spend time on a farm and to understand where milk comes from, where wheat comes from, where vegetable oil comes from, where uh, their meat comes from, all these things. And to understand how these systems work, it'll teach them how to have more respect for those systems because they're delivering something to them and they like what they're consuming uh, and also connect them with, oh my goodness, there's a, a man here. I got to meet the guy who grew this. And um, and if I just remember for me, one of my first inspirations and, and uh, excitement about food processing was I visited a Borden's dairy plant, I think in the second or third grade or something like that. And I was just blown away by, you know, the cartons coming down the thing and the, this big machinery and hundreds yeah. of cartons going out. And this is amazing seeing it go in those plastic tubs and seeing it put in a truck and go off somewhere. And I thought that, that was amazing. Uh, and I still get excited whenever I'm in a food processing plant and I see how raw material is converted into a food product uh, and how much, how much energy and time and you know, how it takes a lot of energy to get that in that package, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of, you know, product development and formulation and shelf life testing and quality control. And there's so much that goes in, into that. And it starts at the producer. Um, and it'd be wonderful to have, be able to have uh, more opportunity to, to, to teach children in particular. And I think adults, um, I think you've lost them by the time they're, uh, they're buying $6 lattes. Um, right. <laughs> you know, they, they just want their coffee or whatever. So yeah. Yeah, good point. And can you tell me uh, about your own company, Agrimaris? Uh, tell me about what you, what you do and and why. So Agrimaris uh, was founded in uh, about eight years ago as a company to bring together uh, to connect opportunities in food production and CPG, particularly around. Uh, specialty areas, whether it's organic and non-GMO or just value-added soybeans, value-added corn. The idea was to make sure that that there was a nexus between all those pieces. We've been doing work for a lot of the large trade associations, large private companies. We've done uh, some very uh, good analysis of some of the issues around fraud and organic, for example, uh, and help to uh, expose some of the issues with some imports coming in from from other countries that were damaging to the U.S. industry. So uh, we've been big supporters of of um, of making sure that value is created and passed through to the stakeholders, including the producers. The, uh, you know, the, you had asked me about uh, education on consumers before on uh, farming before, and I forgot to mention one thing. Um, so the consumer who's buying the $6 latte. Now I, I just, that person, and I'm sorry, I happen to be one of those people as well. <laughs> uh, but people are buying oat milk, soy milk, coconut milk to go in those lattes because they are becoming aware of sustainability issues and they respond to it in their particular manner. You know, whether it's truly effective or not from a large scale, who really know? It's just one, it's just three or four ounces of milk. But believe it or not, the use of plant-based milks at the the national coffee chains is probably the largest market for plant-based milks today. And so it is making a difference. The little purchases that we make creates demand. And I think consumers are now purchasing with a little bit more sensitivity about sustainability. They may not understand exactly 
how to define that. Uh, but they understand that they should be thinking about sustainability. They got kids. They, they don't have grandkids, right? The planet, we, we need to keep this planet sustainable uh, for the next generations. And obviously, there's a lot of challenges just around climate and other issues as well. So making little choices as people can, as they are doing that. So, Very good point. Now, one last question for you. Why do you personally serve the agriculture industry? What's your greatest passion in all of this? I, I think it is to create more food for humanity, to, to have so that there's food justice, that there's enough food for everybody. I, I got in the tofu business. Why? Because I read this great book about how uh soybeans could be utilized for food and how over 90% of it went into animals. And that if people ate soybeans directly, we would increase the availability of soybeans to everybody globally and there'd be enough protein. When I first started publishing the blue book, my forwards and my commitments were always about increasing uh, the value of food in the human food chain so that it was more direct consumption by humans as opposed to feeding animals to then feed humans, which Although might be tasty, it's an inefficient use of our resources. And as we look at 9 billion people on the planet in the next 20 to 30 years, we have a lot, we've got a lot of food to, that we're going to need to produce. Uh, and we need to make sure it's that there's food justice, uh, that everybody on the planet has access to food. Uh, and that means maybe lowering some of the high end stuff that we eat so that there could be more grain and more innovation at that level. To make these products available and, and uh, nutritious and and delicious as well. Right. Well, I think there's going to be some great conversations at the Unconventional Ag Conference, and definitely looking forward to that. Where can people go if they want to sign up? Uh, I believe the website is uh, unconventionalag.com. Um, that's a good place to start. And um, yeah, there's information, the agendas up there, some of the speaker bios, uh, some descriptions of where the tour is going to be and such. So yeah, check it out. And uh, we hope to see you, hope to see a lot of people there. Hope to see you there as well. I will be there. So can't wait to meet you in person, even though All we right. only live <laughs> half hour from, from each other That's most right. of the time. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. And You're thanks welcome. to yeah, and thanks to everyone else who's watching or listening. If you want to learn more, all the links are provided in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to North American Egg Spotlight on YouTube, Rumble, Telegram, Egg Fuse channels, and the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to today's Egg Spotlight episode where we put the spotlight on people and companies doing great things for the agricultural industry. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a five-star review. You can also follow us on YouTube and Rumble to see the video version of Ag Spotlight. Also, head on over to NorthAmericanAg.com to subscribe to our Industry Connect update newsletter. If you're interested in advertising opportunities, email us at connect at NorthAmericanAg.com. Thanks for listening. Our newest podcast by North American Ag is called What Color Is Your Tractor? The stories behind the ag brands you love and the ag brands you love to hate. Hosted by me, Chrissy Wozniak. We take a deep dive into the companies that have built modern agriculture. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. 
go to whatcolorisyourtractor.com, available on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Fastline Auctions, the ultimate destination for online farm equipment auctions. Looking to list equipment? Fastline Auctions knows farmers, and farmers have trusted Fastline for their equipment needs for over 45 years. With unmatched digital reach and direct-to-farmer catalogs, they can find the right buyer for your equipment. Not to mention, they have the industry's lowest commission rates. And if you're looking for equipment to buy, you can bid with confidence. No buyer premiums, no reserves, just integrity. Fastline Auctions, your trusted platform for hassle-free, cost-effective farm equipment auctions. Visit fastline.com for more information. You can join us for a tour of the Fastline Auctions platform July 13th at 6.30 p.m. To register for this webinar, go to northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar. That's northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar to register now.